Hello and welcome to the IFS Zooms In. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Over recent months, you may have seen that local authorities have been struggling. Some of them have been warning that they are facing a funding crisis. And since 2021, six local authorities have already declared bankruptcy, or at least the local authority equivalent of that. And many others have reported that they may soon be forced to do the same. How on earth do we end up in a situation like that? What are the funding pressures facing local authorities? Is government going to do anything to help them? Well, I've got the two best people in the country to help answer those questions today. Tony Travers, who's professor at the LSE, and one expert on local government, and David Phillips, my colleague here at the IFS, who is head of our work on devolved and local government finance. So the two preeminent experts on how local authorities are funded and what some of the problems are. Let's start off with the basics. Local government, local authorities, we hear a bit about them, but given how important they are, and by view, probably not as much as we should do relative to central government. Tony, do you want to kick off with just sort of, what is it? What What, what is local government? What does it do? Well, I know we're, this isn't a constitutional, this is about more a sort of money discussion, but it's just worth parking. Local government is one of the building blocks of the whole of democracy. It's the only thing apart from Parliament and the Welsh, Scottish and Northern Irish governments or parliaments and assemblies that are elected. And it's in a sense the building blocks of the whole of democracy. But it's also the deliverer of a whole range of public services, which are visible as soon as you leave your front door. So as soon as you go out in the street, almost everything you can see is organised by, run by, paid for by local government and taxpayers through local government. So it's enormously important in terms of the way we understand the way the state operates. And as well as that, it delivers loads of services. It delivers social care, delivers libraries, it keeps the streets clean, it keeps the streets lit. And in some ways, it's, as I said, the part of government that is most easy to understand. It's very hard to work out whether defence spending is good or bad. Quite a lot of it seems to be not brilliant, but that's another for another event. <laughs> but with local government, we can all judge it. And interesting, one final point, you get a, a bill each year, the council tax comes through your front door. So people understand council tax in the way they don't understand the other 95% of the taxes one way or another they're paying. So it's an important thing. And it's a very visible thing. Important and visible. I wonder if people understand it quite as well as you describe. Because, David, it's it's true they sweep our streets and light our streets and collect our rubbish. But that's, in the end, a trivial fraction of the money that they spend. The money is increasingly going on things that most of us, most of the time, don't see at all, which is social care for adults, actually increasingly social care of one kind or another for children. Obviously, that's incredibly important for the people that it does affect. But as I said, for most of us, most of the time, we don't really see very much of that. Yeah, the two biggest parts of council's budgets that they control nowadays are adult social care and children's social care, as you say. And a relatively small fraction of the population uses the services, but the amounts involved are very large. For example, some unfortunately very troubled families, sometimes the bills for one family can be a million pounds, two million pounds a year if children have to go into specialist care, for example. What we've seen over the last 10, 15 years is that sheer funding going to things like social care, like children's social services, really go up and up. More, and more meant, than half at the moment? More than half at the moment, probably pushing towards two thirds of council's um, overall discretionary budgets. And that's meant big cuts to other areas 
particularly in the 2010s, we saw big cuts to areas like spending on planning, on housing, on street cleaning, on local transport, and so on and so forth. It has changed a bit since 2020. We'll come to that in a minute, perhaps. But yeah, a lot of what councils spend on goes to a relatively small part of the population, but that does have pretty high needs. Yeah, that's quite a striking fact. I think for all our listeners, two-thirds of the money that your council spends probably is going on children's social services and adult social care. One of the things we're not going to talk about today, actually, Tony, is schools and education. People may think that is a local authority responsibility, uh, but certainly as far as the financing are concerned... Not really. Well, no and yes. Okay, so yes let's no. do that. So yes, <laughs> yes no. because schools, though many schools are now run independently as academies and so on, but some are still run by councils and in some areas a lot of them are. But their funding comes through a dedicated schools grant, which effectively flows through councils' books in a separate account. And why does that matter? Because in recent years, partly for the kind of issues David's been talking about with social care, the costs of providing special educational needs education has gone up very sharply. And a lot of councils are now running deficits on their schools' budgets. Because the schools' budget's ring-fenced, they have to hold these deficits on the council's accounts as sort of negative balances, slightly Orwellian. Um, so they, they, they have to keep them on their books. Every now and again, the government writes a bit of that off for some councils, but they can't do it too much because that creates an enormous incentive for councils to build up deficits. So... Quite a lot of councils, particularly counties, particularly rural areas, are holding these negative amounts in their books because the school's budgets don't balance. That's one, I think, one area of the complexity we will probably leave behind because you say these are ring-fenced budgets. Like housing is ring-fenced When we've been talking about two-thirds of council spending going on children's social services and adult social care, we're excluding the school's budget from that because you can't raid that budget for anything else and, indeed, uh, you don't generally put more money into it. You mentioned district and county and so on. Perhaps before we go any further, we should just talk a little bit about the tiers of local government. The easiest bits to talk about are Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales, which have a single tier of unitary, or Scotland and Wales particularly, unitary authorities. Northern Ireland councils do much less. They're really only providing the most local services. In England, perhaps predictably, we've got a mixture. Some areas have got two levels of government, particularly rural areas more normally. So you get a county and district, counties providing education and libraries and roads, districts providing street cleaning and so on, sort of more environmental services. But in most of the big city, or in all the big cities, Greater Manchester, West Midlands and so on, London, you've got an upper now, a kind of combined authority in most of them with all-purpose unitary authorities providing almost all of what local government does. And in some places, predictably, you have just unitary authorities. So in biggish cities like Leicester or Nottingham, there's just a single tier of unitary authorities, not inside the county. So it's a mixture of spinning already. I'm sorry about that. I'm doing my best here. Um, The other thing to notice is it's not straightforward. It's not. And by the way, the UK has a vanishingly small number of local authorities. The total number of local authorities providing these services across the UK is around 400. The equivalent number of communes in France, 36,000. Whoa! These are very large by global, by international standards. Our local authorities are huge. And so they're trading off efficiency for representativeness, one might say. Okay. I didn't know that statistic about our local authorities being big because our districts don't tend to feel very big. That's only because we're used to them being that big. (laughs) 
I mean, let, let's get on to the sort of where they get their money from. Tony's already mentioned council tax. I thought rather optimistically said this is something that people understand. Um, well, I think would people, you agree with that, Dave? I think people understand <laughs> council tax, but I don't think people understand that council tax is just one of the sources of funding that councils have. Councils at the moment get just over half of their funding from council tax. Which is a lot more than they used to. It's a lot more than they used to. About a third, say, back in 2010. About a quarter comes from business rates, the local retention of the sort of property taxes that is paid by shops and offices and factories, and actually charities like the IFS pay a reduced rate of business rates, but still pay some towards the council. And then about a quarter now comes from grants from central government. That fell a lot during the 2010s and has been coming back up again. But I think one of the issues is that people... They don't understand these various sources of funding. It can be quite difficult to understand what's going on to local services. For example, in the 2010s, many local services were being cut back. That wasn't because council tax was being reduced substantially. In fact, it was frozen in the first part, but then going up at a fair clip in the second half of the 2010s. What was going on? Well, it was the grant funding from government that was being cut. And I think that actually often causes confusion for people. Why is my bill going up? My service is going down. It's because it's just one part of the system. The council tax bills effectively cover about half the spending. So, you know, covers the sort of things outside of adult social care is one way to put it. But rather differentially. So some councils are much more dependent on council tax than others, or to put it another way, some councils are much more dependent on central grant than others. Exactly, yes. So in some parts of the country, particularly poorer areas where more properties are in low value tax bands, those areas can raise less than council tax because the, the tax rates are lower on lower value, low band properties. That means they rely more on central government funding. And when that's cut, that's a bigger impact than the overall budget. So we we saw that when funding was being cut in the 2010s, for example, those cuts were bigger in typically more deprived areas that had fewer properties in those high tax bands. Many of the more affluent areas, the leafy areas of Surrey or Berkshire, they saw much smaller cuts because actually most of their funding came from council tax even back at the start of this period. So the cuts and grants were less of a, a challenge for them. Yeah, David's characterization is brilliant as ever. We've learned a lot from IFS work, if I can just compliment you both while I'm here, and because we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't know all of this if it were not for organisations such as IFS doing this work. But the disconnect between the bills people are paying going up and down and the services they receive going down and up, it, it is bewildering. But I still, I still think that the arrival of the bill is something people understand. Yeah. The brown envelope, they definitely understand. <laughs> and the instalments, if they're paying by instalments, they get yeah. Let, let's let's carry on with bewildering, shall we? Because a really important part of all of this is how the money comes from central government to these local authorities. And for many local authorities, that is the key thing. And it's not entirely optimal, is it, the way that it works? The system isn't really a system at all. Um, <laughs> we last had, I think, an effective system of local government finance in England, at least, before 2006. Well, that's oh. pushing 20 years ago. There was a a, a sort of a, an attempt in the kind of late 2000s by Labour basically to make the system opaque so that ministers could move around money in ways that people couldn't understand. And then the Conservatives in 2013 ended even that system and moved to a system where effectively there's no way to work out how much areas are getting compared to how much they potentially need to spend. So over the last 18 years, we've really seen the local government finance system, in my mind, break down and at the moment, funding for different areas is effectively arbitrary. There's no link to the different circumstances they have in terms of population growth, in terms of demographics. It's a mess. 
I mean, it is a mess. And David's hinted that there are two underlying logics to it. I mean, in, so it's oddly for Britain, because it's similar in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland, similar systems. But intense efforts were made to measure the needs of every council. So a very complicated formula. And that, that's the thing that David's talking about, really not being uprated anymore. It was very complicated for it. Look, how many children you were, how deprived they were, how many miles of road the council had put it into a sort of great big formula. So a council that had a lot of need would get a bigger grant. And those, as David says, that had low tax base, so a council like Knowsley, say, on the edge of Liverpool, lots of houses in bands A and B, low bands, so they couldn't raise as much from council tax as, say, we're always going to use it as an example, Westminster or some affluent authority in Berkshire or Wokingham. Wokingham's the best example, isn't it? And so there was compensation for the differences in that tax base as well. So the grant was doing all of these things at once, and it meant an authority such as Barnsley or Knowsley would get a very large grant, and one such as Richmond-upon-Thames or Wokingham would get a very small grant. And as David absolutely rightly says, when the cuts were made, the deepest cuts between 2010 and 2015, it was effectively a kind of flat percentage of the grant that they were receiving. So if you got a lot of grant, you were losing more pounds relative to your spending than if you were getting a much smaller grant. But that system has now atrophied into effectively roughly the same percentage increase for each council every year, but with a variation caused by the need to fund social care through an entirely separate grant system, in effect, mm. which is now trying to equalise between councils in a way that only, I suspect, David understands. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is hideously complex and hideously out of date. Um, yeah. And this is partly what you mean when you say the whole system's broken down, that the, the basis on which councils get their money is based on their populations from 10 years ago and formulae from 20 years ago and data and from goodness knows where. Some of the data actually is from the 1980s what? in these formulas. Some, I thought I, I was shocked when I saw that you'd written about it coming from the 2000s, from the 1980s. Yeah, there's a couple of variables in some of the formulas from the 1980s, almost well, as old as me. Not many people know that. Actually, I, 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 I I think I can up. I think because of because of the 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 nineteen seventies, sixties. I think you can say because of an attempt to minimise the switches, sort of safety netting for councils. Even in, you could argue there's elements of distributions from the sixties still in there because every year contains an element of the previous year's protection from too big a swing. So. It is. It's like a sort of very slow-moving iceberg, but now slightly shrinking iceberg as well. I fear. Perhaps we've begun to get the answer to the, to the next question, which is: Would it be fair to say that we're in a period of crisis now in in local government? I mean, to some extent, one has heard local authorities say this for a while, and they manage at least to kind of pull through. As I said in the introduction, half a dozen have effectively gone bust over the last two or three years. Are we in a situation of crisis? And if so, why? There's two things here. Almost all the ones that have issued so-called Section 114 notices, the local government's version of a source of bankruptcy, almost all of them have one-off issues. I think the more interesting question is the other 98% of councils who appear to be nearer the edge. Yeah, no, I think that's a really important point. I was going to come on to it in a second. I think it's worth kind of casting our mind back a few years again to say the 2010s. So why are we where we are now? Well, part of it is because in the 2010s, we saw these cuts of, say, 20% to councils funding when you account for the big cuts in grants and then trying to make up for that let's do council tax. They couldn't make up for it. It was a 20% cut. That's a big cut, 20%. That's a big cut. Now, actually, since the kind of start of the 2020s, it's quite a different picture. 
If you look at what's happened to council funding and compared it to economy-wide inflation, between 2021 and the plans for next year, 2024, it's 11% real terms increase. Now, what are they complaining about then? Well, the issue is the cuts in the prior years, but also, I think more importantly, is that it seems that a lot of councils' costs are outpacing general inflation to a significant extent. So we've already heard about, for example, special educational needs. And it's not just the cost of the schools, it's the cost of school transport. There's been a huge increase in the cost of like taxis ferrying children to and from school. There's been massive increases in the cost of children's social care services, especially placements for very vulnerable children. And then some of the decisions made in Westminster, for example, around freezing local housing allowance rates, the sort of benefit rates you can get to pay for for rent for low-income tenants, that meant the cost of temporary accommodation increasingly fell on council's budgets rather than being covered by benefits bills. So many of the costs have been outpacing general inflation. Just one example, just between 2022 and 2023, spending on children's social care services up 16% year on year in a kind of context of inflation of probably 7 8% over that year. I think what's happening is that just costs in many areas are sort of become a bit out of control. And then, as Tony said, also seen particular circumstances in particular councils. The way I tend to think about it is every council is under pressure. The ones that have reached crisis points so far have been those that have particular circumstances, high debts or particular reliance on commercial investments, but more pushed as times go by. Unless these costs come under control, more will be pushed to that crisis point. So those costs, the children being ferried to school or the children's social services or whatever, is, is, do we understand that? that? Is that just an unexpected growth in demand? I think there's a number of things going on at once, not least of which is, of course, Councils tend to sign contracts for a number of years. And so the last time the contract was signed, you know, got several things going on. Inflation was very much lower. And, you know, the need to, as you know better than I, that local government, like the health service, in parts is trying to hold its costs down by paying relatively lowly. And that can only go on up to a point because eventually, understandably, Tesco's and other companies can compete away the labour force. So there's a whole range of pressures, but it's particularly, I think, where contracts come to an end for running care homes or children's homes. There's a huge step up from when those contracts were last signed. And those tend to be the kind of figures that I think David's talking about. And yes, I think also, you know, what you've seen traditionally in adult social care, actually, I'll be a bit technically, the um, <laughs> the issue in adult social care traditionally has been, as, as Tony was saying, that councils, because of their market power, they're the big buyer of social care services, they use that to drive down costs. Economists call it monopsony power, not monopoly, monopsony power. That meant that many social care providers were saying, we can't afford to, to do these services, you need to pay us more. And councils did actually increase their pay rates. I think what we've seen actually on the other side, though, not adult social care, children's social care, for these specialist sort of services, these secure units for the very troubled children, there's actually not many providers. They're privately owned. They're quite hard to enter because it's very specialised in terms of the accommodation, in terms of the staff and the training. And actually, they, I think, have monopoly power. And actually, we've seen prices go up in these areas. So there's a debate in councils now about should actually these prices be regulated because these providers have monopoly power? Or should we bring these services back into council control? Because as we know with other industries... Private sectors don't always work very well when you have monopoly power, unless you have good regulation to make sure that's not being exploited. Yeah, very interesting. Um, 
Tony, are there any um, councils currently on Section 114 you know, watch? Are there ones that you can look at and think, blimey, that one's going to go soon? It's terribly difficult to judge in advance. It's interesting, Michael Gove, the levelling up secretary, who, in fairness, has, as David said, by implication, been much more successful at getting money out of the Treasury in recent years than his predecessors. And we actually had a big top-up in yeah. the last couple of months. Yeah, that's an unprecedented, suddenly finding £600 million down the back of the sofa. That's very un- uh, Which un- is an indication of how worried central government actually yeah. is, because from my time in the Treasury, I mean, I have to say, local government was always right at the back of the queue. Yeah. I mean, even in the days when there was money around, because I was yeah. in the Treasury when there was money around. It's partly because, of course, local government is quite good at managing its books downwards. That's something we might talk about. But I think that the position local government finds itself in now is different for the reasons David was saying, because of the cumulative effect of reduced spending. And of course, the population's growing as well. The per capita figures are not as good as the absolute figures. Or even worse, I think. And you've got uh, a whole range of things happening at once. But the difficulty, as we say, Michael Gove, appearing before the levelling up select committee, was asked this precise question. How many authorities are on, on your watch list for trouble. And of course, he wouldn't answer it either as a number or given any examples. And the reason for that is it's very hard from the outside to know which councils are right on the edge. One or two have advertised that they might be, but it's hard then to work out whether they're lobbying for more money because some of them, and I think this you could see this in the run-up to the local government finance settlement just before Christmas, lots of groups of authorities were saying, woe and gloom, we're going to be having lots of our members issuing Section 114 notices next year. Now, they might. But it was also part of a lobbying process to put pressure on the government. And in a, you know, an absolutely predictable way, local authorities are now beginning to use the threat of Section 114 notices to pressurise the government. 40 MPs, Conservative MPs, signed a letter to the government that led to the 600 million you're talking about. The, the sense that there are alarm bells ringing and that councils know how to ring them more effectively is definitely out there. There will almost certainly be some authorities issuing Section 114 notices this year. It's just we can't tell which ones and in what order. Indeed. And if you look at how different councils have approached Section 114 notices, these bankruptcies, you said the affected bankruptcies, different councils have been handling it in different ways. For example, in 2018, when I think Northamptonshire was one of the first to go before COVID, they got right to the edge. Their reserves have been almost entirely run down before they got to that stage. If you look at Nottingham Council, which I think was the last one back in November, they still had about £150 million in reserves at that stage. But the finance director said that we think the trajectory is bad. And if you were to draw that down now, given the history of challenges in making savings plans, given that we often struggle to actually do what we see, let's do it now. Let's try to nip this in the bud now before we get to that stage we run out. So I think one of the challenges in working out who's going to go next is it's partly a decision of the, what's called the Section 151, another <laughs> acronym there, or can't really think, the finance chief to decide, actually, when should we do this? And I think part of it is also about internally in councils, making sure that councillors can see the challenge, because that can sometimes be an issue. If you're in a councillor voted in to do what you want to do for your sort of constituents, sometimes you may need that push to face those tough challenges about budget cuts or tax increases at a local level. One thing it's worth, I think, adding as as an important detail, and it explains partly why what you were describing at the Treasury is is the case, that for their day-to-day spending, revenue spending, councils are required to balance their books each year. 
So they are supposed to spend no more than they get in from council tax, business rates, government grants, plus or minus any reserves that they use. That's a very powerful impact because that's why it was possible between 2010 and 2017 for the government to bring local government spending down because each year the finance chief said to the councillors, well, we can't spend more than the income we've got. And the government was able to take that number down by 20%. That had happened in the NHS disaster and the NHS overspends. So councils can't overspend. They just bring their spending down. And in the case of the well-run ones, they bring their spending down to any number you chose. Now, the services would gradually disappear. And this leads, some of this ends up in the courts because the courts then have to decide what's a statutorily appropriate legal level of service. But the courts move with the money. They know that councils can't provide £120 worth of services for £80. They know that. So I guess that brings us to this question of what does it mean when a Section 114 is served? What does it mean to go bankrupt? Because they don't actually stop doing things. So you, you, they don't chuck every all the people in social care out onto the street and they don't stop collecting a bit. And so what, what, what changes? What changes is that the most obvious thing is that the council, though even this isn't 100% true, can't really sign any more contracts just pay for anything. In emergency, they'd have to. If there's something terrible happened, and they'd have to pay for it. But generally, it means no more commitments to spend this year and reductions in spending where possible to bring the books back into balance. And it puts a lot of power in the hands, as David's implied, of the finance chief. It's a way of passing power from the members to the officers who are acting almost as an agent of government through the law. And what you often find is that councils will have to still meet their statutory duties to provide care, for example, for social care or, or for, for children in need. But there's a little bit of interpretation around that. And so you might see cutbacks in the amount of social care being provided, the sort of needs tests they apply to determine whether you're, you're, you're sick enough to need support. They might change. You might see closures of children's centres, cutbacks in some of the more universal services. So it does have a real impact. We've seen all that over the 2010s anyway, haven't we? I yeah. mean, it, it, it's become harder to qualify for social care, for example. Indeed. But what you often find with a Section 114 notice is that will happen at rapid pace. Councils will be able to meet the letter of the law uh, as they've required to do, but that law has interpretation around it. And actually, that's one of the kind of uh, big debates in social care at the moment. Is actually what council's doing, is it really meeting the spirit of the law, even meeting the letter of the law? Mm. And because of it, let's not get too lost in social care, but do a whole podcast on that. But we're in this position, aren't we, where there is a national rule about what you should get, but local delivery and local funding, which varies across the country. And, you know, there is, in, as you're both implying, interpretation within the laws, a particularly bleak case, which I think is worth discussing, of a council that effectively told an elderly woman that she could no longer have somebody coming to the house at night, but she'd have to be given incontinence pads for the night. Okay. And that case went to court. And it was actually briefly overturned. But in the end, the council won because the courts have to make a, a question about reasonableness. Is it reasonable for the council to do this? Wensbury reasonableness, major principle of English law. And I don't think the courts think it is reasonable for councils to spend money that doesn't exist. And, and it leads to that kind of personal decision about whether you get somebody coming to your home at night to take you to the toilet or not. That's the kind of thing that happens. My impression is that in some areas, special educational needs, for example, 
a lot of this goes to appeal and court, and the appellant very often wins that. That's what led to the big uptick in, David will remember the year, I think it was 2011 or it might have been 2013, big uptick in the costs of providing for special educational needs pupils because there was a court case and the government made the system more generous. and That led to all the deficits that many councils have now built up. Interesting. So uh, we, we should probably spend the next few minutes of this sort of on the what next. I mean, you've painted uh, between you a slightly grim picture. <laughs> of, uh, of the, I thought we'd been quite optimistic. <laughs> of the state of um, local authorities, where I think I, I think the picture we're getting is that there was really big cuts over the 2010s in the money that, that, that they've had. And whilst in some sense that's been partially reversed over the last two or three years, a lot of chickens have come home to roost and a, a lot of big increase in some areas of demand, which it's very difficult for councils to manage. And they're all getting, I think you described it as a, a sort of pretty much an arbitrary amount of money from central government in terms of the in terms of the distribution between them. David, there was this thing, wasn't there, called the Fair Funding Review, which uh, was intended to put the whole thing on a slightly more rational basis. The idea, I think, being to update all these formulae and update the data so that councils, at least in some sense, got a a non-arbitrary amount of money, an amount that actually reflected one way or another their actual needs. But um, surprise, surprise, kicked out beyond the next election. Yes. The original plan was to complete this by 2019. Well, that was, was I just about remember 2019, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was pushed to 2020, then pushed back because of COVID. And then it was expected after the pandemic, but then was pushed back, as you say, after the election. I think it's important to point out that this fair funding review was not about the total level of funding. It was about how that funding pie is divvied up between different councils. And I think fair funding review was a perhaps optimistic name for this. I think kind of, you know, <laughs> well, fairness is in the eye of the beholder. Well, they wouldn't call it the unfair funding review. <laughs> Slightly less unfair, perhaps. <laughs> um, but I think the aims behind this were really quite laudable. And a lot of work went into this. A lot of work was gone into getting councils to agree the general principles, to look at particular funding formulas and to try to update them. They're actually formulas sitting on the desk of of people at the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities, gathering dust and slightly getting out of date again now um, because it's taken so long to, to get where we are. But I think that is one thing we do need to tackle because if funding is going to be tight, and we, we, we know that even if after the next election, the government comes in, looks at the figures and says, we can't, we can't cut back this much. The public finance situation is such that there's not going to be vast amounts of money there. So funding is going to be tight. In that circumstance, I think it's even more important that the funding goes and is allocated in the way that's most effective at addressing the needs of different parts of the country. So I think it has to happen. But it's even more challenging to do this. It's more necessary, but it's more challenging because to give more money to those areas that are underfunded, you need to cut it when funding is tight. You can't have all boats rising up just at different rates. Some boats need to fall for others to rise. And that's the issue. It's more necessary, but it's harder. Lucky old next government, eh? Well, not unique to this, really. (laughs) And David, just to make David's point, it is absolutely spot on accurate, which is 
in a sense, after this period where many councils are spending less today than they were in 2010, making it fairer, which we all agree it should be made fairer, might well mean taking money from a council which is spending 20% less now than it was in 2010 to give it to another authority that's spending 20% less now than it was in 2010. So all you've then done is one's now down 30 and the other's down 10. It's that kind of problem. You can only do these kinds of redistribution in a system where there's a lot of money, where the losers don't quite lose and the gainers gain a lot. When you're trying to do it with little or no extra money, or you're just taking people down to a lower level of spending than they were back in 2010, even lower, it's just not going to work. And the risk of Section 114 notices would be further worse because the authorities that lost would suddenly find themselves much worse off. I think the kind of first stage in addressing this is basically one of two things needs to happen. Either central government or local government needs to have additional ways of raising revenue, or we need to work out what local government can no longer afford to do. In a world where you have resources that are not great enough to fund things nationally, and certainly not great enough to make it that easy to redistribute funding, either you need to provide more funding, or you need to cut back what you think councils need to provide. Then that's a really difficult choice, but... Is there, is there, what is there to cut back? You've already described a world in which a lot's being cut and we can't... You I know, think David means... Not, I mean, you could no actually libraries. say, well, that these things are no longer statutorily to be provided. But we know governments, even governments that believe in a smaller state and less regulation, find it almost impossible to say we're no longer going to do this as government. Mm. It's almost impossible. They won't do it. They add responsibilities mm. to councils, but they never take them away. Let's come back to uh, one of the things we started with then. What about council tax? That's going up about 5% this year. People aren't going to like that, but that's no higher than inflation. And indeed, if you base this back last year, it's a bit less than inflation was when these things were set. Can we get out of this by increasing council tax further? I think the difficulty well, is where to begin. There's another five <laughs> programmes to be done on the council tax. but Let's not get into the sort no, no, of problem you, specifically of council tax. It's a square bracket. It needs desperately. It desperately needs reforming. This is park it. Second square bracket. It's not going to get. It's it. not going to get reformed either. So we've just <laughs> no. done that. That's, that saves you the whole series. Not in England, at least. Not in England. Wales is uh, better David at this. David is trying Wales to sort Wales out. Wales exactly. Wales is better at this. They're great credit. So a council tax can go up, but it is effectively by cutting central government's contributions. David was saying earlier to local government, much of which would have come from progressive taxes such as income tax and shifting the burden onto council tax. Although there is a system of relief for people on very low incomes paying council tax, for people just outside that protection, so what you might call not quite poor people, though some of them are, they get little or no protection. And for them, it's terribly regressive as a tax. So you're, in a sense, we've moved part of the cost of paying for local government from more progressive basket of taxes to a obviously not very progressive tax. And that is a freestanding separate problem. I mean, you can look at the whole tax system in the round, I know as you do here, but for the people who pay it, getting that bill, they notice it. Yeah. Not politically popular either. Very, it's one of those bills that is most salient to people because with income tax, it comes out of your salary before it goes to your bank account. This is something you need to pay out of your bank account. So you're right, it's one that is actually much smaller for most people than, say, income tax, but is, is much more obvious to people. And I, I agree with Tony what Tony's saying there. Reliance on council tax for increases, I actually think it's quite likely. I think that probably will be what happens. But two challenges. One is, as Tony was saying, that it is a less sort of progressive tax 
than many of the other sort of national tax, like income tax, even national insurance, it would see a bit of a shift of the tax burden. Now, you might think that's an appropriate thing to do. It's not just a distributionally neutral thing. It's not a neutral act making councils rely more on council tax. It does it, it have implications for the, the distribution of the tax burden across the population. But I think it also has implications across different parts of the country. We, we came to this earlier in the 2010s, as they cut grants, that was much bigger cuts for those that relied on council tax for less of the budget relied on those grants for more. Are we heading back into that world? Would, you, would we see in the second half of the 2020s, if it's council tax you're relying on for the increases, that conveys much more in Wokingham than it can in Wolverhampton in Kingston than it can in Knowsley. I think we come back to this issue about not just distribution across the population, but across the country. And that's why I think even though for councils as a whole, they'll say what we need is more money, what you need to make sure that money gets to the right places is a funding system. It is about distribution as well. Good luck to the next Secretary of State <laughs> here, I think. The, the cupboard we, won't be any less bare, <laughs> will it? <laughs> I think the picture that uh, the, the two of you are painting is is, is, is not a very pretty one. Um, we've had all of these cuts. We've got the um, big increases in, in pressures. We've got an irrational system of funding, an unpopular council tax, and no money from the Treasury available at the very best. Even if the Treasury has got money available, local government is going to be one of many bits of government they're going to be begging once a, a, an election has happened. And even if they can find a little bit of extra money, it doesn't sound like it's going to be enough for quite a long time to sort out uh, some of these problems. And and the last thing I take from this is you know, when you've got uh, an issue, you really do need to try and sort it out when there's money around. We didn't sort out any of this properly in the 2000s when there was money around, whether that be reforming council tax or, or putting local authority funding on a rational basis. Didn't make the cuts in a sort of across the board or what you might call fair way. The current government has kicked reform into the long grass. And go back to the very first thing that David said, which is that we've ended up with an essentially arbitrary system for funding what Tony right at the beginning described as fundaments of our democratic country. So on that cheerful note... Can I end with a cheerful uh, note? Oh, go for it. No. <laughs> go on. Go on. Shock us. I think it is challenging, as you say, but I think there is a bit of an opportunity for sort of more learning across local government ah. sector. There's a lot of angst at the moment about something called the Office for Local Government. Ooh. It's a new body which will be collecting data on local government in terms of their spending, in terms of various sort of measures of performance and outcomes. And done badly, that sort of analysis can paint a misleading picture. But done well, I think there's a chance to really learn lessons from councils that potentially are delivering good outcomes from their funding and learn lessons for other councils. So I think actually there's a chance we know from the NHS, from other public services, there are big variations in performance across the public services. If you can learn the lessons from those doing best and try to get those more spread across the country, I think that actually could help at least a little bit address these challenges. So I think there's an opportunity to see not this new data collection, this new analysis as, oh, it's going to be another kind of threat to us. Actually, it could be an opportunity if done well and if councils engage in it fully. Well, I like that. The IFS answer to everything. Collect more data and analyse it properly. Right, too. And that will, uh, that will help sort even something as difficult as local government finance. Tony, David, thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of the IFS Zooms In. To see more of our work, do visit www.ifs.org.uk. And to further support us, if you would like to, do consider becoming a member for as little as £10 a month. You can find out more in the episode description. We'll see you next time. Thank you.